Now, after 65 years of effort to get unified mm -hmm. theories, the situation is perhaps reversed. Now, the idea is that uh, apart from the success of, of uh, unification of weak interactions, still we have the same effort as Albert Einstein to try to unify, unify uh, gravitation and all the interactions. And now the idea is that you have to change the, the ge geometry. There is a, the, the, the formal part becomes important. Is that right or not? I would like to hear your opinion on that. Well, I don't think it's really possible to make any theoretical prediction about how a new step in physics will happen. After all, quantum mechanics started in a way that nobody would have guessed by fitting, making a theoretical fit, not even a theoretical fit, by making an analytical fit to experimental data on black body radiation, quantum mechanics started. That was a pretty weird way for a theory to start. The string theory started with a for clever formula written down by Veneziano in an effort to satisfy not so well motivated phenomenological ideas about strong interaction scattering. That was a way for a theory to start which was as strange as the way quantum mechanics started. And the way Einstein happened to have uh, invented a theory in a particularly striking triumph of reason and intuition, but most other physical theories have had more complicated histories. And it's hard to make theories about them. You can't generalize at all of how invention will come. Anybody who makes statements like that is going by his own experience. And I think these statements must be modified according to each situation. What would you say? Well, it still seems to me it's a question of whether you start with a mathematical scheme and then look for a physical interpretation, or start with a physical principle which you guess to be correct, and then on the one hand try and prove it experimentally to be true, and on the other hand uh, codify it into a mathematical form. I must admit, I've always been so uh, admiring Einstein's procedure in general relativity of starting with a very simple physical remark based on the <coughs> Galileo discovery that bodies of different mass fall at the same rate in the gravitational field of the Earth. He made a simple physical hypothesis why that should be true, and that forced all the complications of non-Euclidean geometry and so on uh, to put the physical idea into a proper form. But if you'd started by saying, let me think of a mathematical scheme that might lead to gravity, let's try non-Euclidean geometry, that would have been, uh, to no, me, a very strange way no, of proceeding. Einstein had all the field theoretic theories of gravity, with spin zero and spin one, of course, wrong. Before he started, he knew all that. Then uh, he had all the intuition of the non-Riemannian geometry from the work of Gauss and Riemann themselves. So if Einstein had not started and had not lived even, I'm pretty certain that two or three or four years later, somebody may have hit upon the same things. Hilbert nearly did. Well, only stimulus from Einstein. I agree with you, except that I think it would have taken more decades. More. Longer, longer, longer yes. Yeah. You see, Riemann almost did it. Riemann almost did it. Riemann had the conception that gravity was based on curved space-time, but what he lacked, sorry, Riemann had the conception that gravity was based on curved space. He didn't conceive of curved space-time because special relativity hadn't happened yet, so That's time right. and space exactly. hadn't been unified. Exactly. But if Riemann had lived after special relativity, he, he might it. well have lived. Sure. Gauss made even the experiments, you remember. So I don't think it's a, such a cut-and-dried case ever. Well, could Let I... me give you one more example, if I may. Please. Um, <laughs> about invention and so on. Dirac, whom we were celebrating today by 
giving admittance the first direct medal, was a great advocate, you may remember, of pure thought and handsome, beautiful theories and so on and so on. Mathematical beauty. Mathematical beauty. beauty. If there is a mathematical beauty in the theory, it must be true. True, Even though experiment didn't show it. Now, it so happens that supergravity or supersymmetry is a very beautiful theory. There's no question about it. I had the privilege of lecturing on this subject in 1974 when Dirac was in the audience at the Miami conference. Dirac, of course, as usual, kept quiet, didn't say a thing. And I pressed its beauty, its renormalizabilities, and all the great points about in favor of this theory. He didn't say anything. So after the lecture, I went to him and I said, Professor Dirac, don't you think this satisfies all your actions of very, very beautiful theories? And wouldn't you like to believe that this is true, the truth? And to my amazement, Dirac of all people said to me, if this theory was true, it would have been discovered long ago. The truth of supersymmetry would have been discovered long ago. Experimentally? Mm-hmm. Experimentally. Mm-hmm. Now, there was the true physicist, like yes, us, yes, yes. humble people speaking, yes. not the Dirac which we had learned from. So I would not like to be too dogmatic about any of these actions which uh, Paolo has read to us. If it turns out that string theory is right, it will extend the, the, the historical uh, range of how theories have been discovered in a yes. very interesting way. Very interesting way. Because its discovery is as peculiar as the history of any really major discovery. That's right. And uh, anybody's scheme for how major discoveries can happen will we'll have to be very flexible if a pre-existing scheme agrees with this one. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, if there is a pre-existing framework, if someone has a theory of discoveries, pre-existing theory written before string theory, which is flexible enough that it can accommodate this one, then I suspect it has a little predictive power. <laughs> but could I defend my position a little bit? I see sitting at the side, as it were, various uh, clever people inventing new mathematical schemes. There's the scheme we've heard from Ed Witten just now so beautifully uh, expounded in his lectures. We've got Roger Penrose with twisters. We have other people saying, let us start with not a differentiable manifold, but some Mm. other more primitive topological structure for space-time and so on. The difficulty is, how do you decide which of these mathematical schemes is on the right lines if you've no guidance from a physical principle that I was asking for before? Each of these schemes separately is beautiful, I would say. But there's no guidance as to which is likely well, to be right. String, I do not know whether Edward agree with you or not. I do not know of any reasons apart from duality. But there's no test of duality really, is there? Very, very feeble. So string theory is a good example of your type of worry, where mathematics is driving, or rather the formalism is driving the theory. But I think the uniqueness of this theory is a very appealing thing, wouldn't you say so, Ed? Uh, yes. I think that they're there. The mere fact that it's a unique... Well, there are millions of ways of getting to the strings, as we heard from Ed. But uh, apart from that, the fact that in the end the, there is a string and so on, which is going to replace space and time in some special way, is, I think, uh, significant and giving you a unique theory. What I wanted to ask you was, in the end, you were getting to a phi-cube-like theory. Now, this has never happened before that a light cone gauge thing, which light cone gauge also gives phi cube, 
as the unique theory. It's never happened before that the light cone gauge has given you the same type of theory formally as uh, a non-light cone gauge theory. What I mean is, for example, right, so gravity and light cone gauge. Yes. It's horrible. It's horrible. Oh. Wouldn't you say so? Yes. Well, this also is horrible, light cone gauge, by comparison. These four, first, actually, the light cone gauge for the open string has a quartic term as well, which Randbar was asking about. But the light cone gauge for the open string or closed string involves much nastier formulas. Well, they are 5 cube or 5 fold with some derivatives and so on. Yes, but non localities and. Non localities, I agree when, with you. When you, you say. Hope, you are hoping that when we will go to a supersymmetric case, those non localities will disappear. Is that the well, point? I'm not committed to using light cone gauge for anything. No, so my fear was that in the end, yeah. after the dust is settled, you may come back to the same site of sort of structures as the light cone gauge is already giving. And in that case, we shall not have. Mm -hmm. scored a greater triumph oh. this time no. than we have in the past. Well, that's right. Well, the way I would put it is that um, I think it's more satisfying to have a gauge invariant framework from which you can derive the Veneziano model. But to be really true, it would have to, be, it would have to lead to other things that would yes. simplify it and explain yes. the logical yes. structure. Yes. Right now, it's nice to have a framework where you can only have one Lagrangian. But it would be even nicer to have some reason that this particular algebra would inevitably appear as the answer to some question. Yes, yes. And that's the kind of thing that has to happen if yeah. what I was lecturing about is on the right track. And things is certainly true, but, but uh, uh, yeah. I don't know. Well, the convergence, I mean, the ultraviolet uh, disappearance of uh, more than the Veneziano. This was the real origin, no? Well, the, the, the reason why it becomes so this is quite important. Hope. Yes, this is the, the hope. hope. Yes. Well, but, Ed thinks it's certainly true, but, but uh, uh, yeah. I don't know. But, and then, then it would not imply some revision of the conception of space-time, of, of well, drastic conception. Come. That's yeah. already come, as you heard today. Yeah, and, and so, yes. Uh, and uh, so it is a drastic, I, I mean, probably I believe, a drastic I mean, revision of our, our uh, oh, concept I, of geometry. I believe that, like the Bohr atom, in its day, string theory has within it the seeds of a real revolution in the way we understand physics. Yeah. String theory we understand in a very primitive way. Yeah. But I think locked in it, there are some amazing things that have to be unlocked. Uh, the relationship of quantum theory and general covariance and so on. I don't know if you, my good, I shouldn't call him a pupil, my colleague, Professor Aishum at Imperial College, he once said to me that he joined quantum gravity bandwagon in order to get out of space-time, which he loved more, equivalence and diffeomorphisms and so on, quantum theory. And with strings, the opposite seemed to be happening. Mm -hmm. That's just the remark which you were making. Is that right? Well, I'm just not convinced that we know which of the ingredients that we now know from string theory will prove to be more fundamental. But you didn't you say that quantum theory was not going to come out of it? Oh. That was the question. I said that, indeed, string theory might explain quantum mechanics in the sense that string theory might be, for the first time, a theory which was more natural as a quantum theory. After all, if you take it at face value, it was first discovered as a quantum theory. The first things calculated were, were scattering amplitudes. No, but what would you say the quantum fraction is, quantization principle is coming in? 
What? What do you think fundamentally, basically? Oh, I don't know. And uh, then you speak of the structure of space and time or some yes. revolution thereof. Would you not expect that you would get a new structure in which somehow quantization principles, superposition, matter? Well, that would be better. It would be far better if string theory does explain quantum mechanics. Yes. But in the spirit of um, trying to take some steps, since you can't do everything all at once, I tried to take the conservative hypothesis of assuming we might not explain quantum mechanics, but only a fundamental uh -huh. generalization of yes. the known symmetries. I'm being those people who are looking within quantum gravity, the origin of quantum theory from gravity theory yes. have been defeated. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that they should start working on string theory because it, has, <laughs> it, has, it really has a potential to do what they've been dreaming of. You see, I made such a point of saying that I wasn't going to assume that string theory would explain quantum mechanics just to plant in people's mind the fact that there's a question that maybe I am being too conservative. Yes, uh, yes I took it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but quantum right. mechanics is so weird. I mean, although it's an old theory, its weirdness is coming out more and more into the open in recent years with various discussions. So it's not at all clear that, that just saying uh, matter is made of strings is going to... You know, explain this weirdness, which seems no, no, no. Uh, you know, on a different level of structure. So. By which space-time is different than we thought. And by which, I mean, one could, could go back perhaps to Cartan. He said this the same thing, I mean, in 37, that the Euclidean geometry is a very complicated geometry, while the geometry of, of zero vector is the more elementary one. Now, there is a lot of zero vectors in these, in these minimal surfaces. I mean, the zero vectors, this was known uh, 150 years ago that zero vectors generate by various tries minimal surfaces. So maybe that is also. But the Euclidean geometry is not the most elementary one. You say that Cartan discovered the exceptional groups? I, think Did I, I said it, and I hope I didn't get it wrong. No, no, I think it's right. Is that true? They are not discovered by Mr. Lee, Sophos Lee. Maybe the, 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 the intimidation of the algebras, but the, the groups were no, first no, no, done. No, no. E8 as a group was only done much later. Neither Cartan nor Lee proved that there was an E8 group. Oh. If I'm not mistaken, Cartan discovered the E8 Lee algebra, which had been unknown to Lee. Which is unknown to Lee. Yes. Lee may have, what Lee did with Lee algebras, I don't know. But you could, you could do it. Obviously, obviously there's, he must maybe introduce the concept, general concept of Lee algebras, although some special cases have been done before yeah. and proved some basic theorems about them. But he didn't classify them. I'm pretty certain... You see, um, it's difficult, even if you have a Lie algebra, to determine if there is a corresponding group. Not every Lie algebra uh, can be exponentiated to give a Lie group. Mm -hmm. And you can prove that, let's say, for the SON Lie algebra, there is an SON group by actually describing it as orthogonal motions of space. But to prove that there is an E8 group was apparently difficult. Did you discuss mm. the what what we expect experimentally today from the string theories? I actually think that uh, one of the few predictions that have been made, which haven't been made in the context of other theories, is the existence of fractional electric charges that aren't confined. Is that a definite prediction which will not be changed? Well, I, I think mean, it has a higher pro probability of staying than anything else. Because you stated it for the first time in a rather small paper. No, no, no. I wrote a long paper with my student Wen. Oh. I wrote a survey of, of the theory in which I stated it rather briefly, perhaps. I see. 
But do you think that this is, un there are many elements here. Yes. Secondly is their confinement. Now, are you sure that they will, someday you will not want to confine them again? I don't think there's any reason they would. They don't have any real quantum numbers except electricity or other abelian quantum numbers. Uh, you see, I mean, the burden of proof is to show that there aren't fractional charges. Now, uh, in four dimensions, we prove there aren't fractional charges in standard unification because unification or symmetry breaking we do with Higgs expectation values, which we can turn off continuously. Mm -hmm. And turning them off, the representations must go over to representations of the unified group. Mm -hmm. And the unified group doesn't allow fractional charges. But if we're going to work in string theory, the, the symmetry breaking has to be something that can't be smoothly turned off. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's no reason there shouldn't be fractional charges. And I believe that it should be a generical property of models of that kind, even if many ingredients we now think we understand actually are wrong. This fractional charge is not one. <laughs> How did you determine that one fifth? Uh, I really, um, uh, well, the states that have one-fifth electric charge are states where a closed string wraps around a non-contractible loop. I see. And if you just calculate the electric charge of such as eight, you get one-fifth, uh -huh. or a multiple of one-fifth. Mm -hmm. I see. So that's quite spectacular. Yeah. Well, the discovery would be, but of course, <laughs> since the particles have Planckian masses, yes. they wouldn't sit at the center of the Earth the Earth's gravity would attract them to the center. Sorry, they wouldn't sit on the Earth's surface. Gravity would pull them out of... Such a particle with its feeble electric charge and its heavy mass wouldn't be electrically bound in atoms. Gravity uh, of the Earth would pull it right out. Well, I was going to ask you, Ed, actually, following <laughs> on Abbas's question, looking for consequences of yes? this new scheme, would there be either astronomical or cosmological consequences specific to the new scheme? 10 to the minus 5 grams. Maybe the missing mass. Well, you know, a question like that is difficult to answer because the interaction of particle physics and cosmology is frequently quite nonlinear and unpredictable. What about this lens effect and those things that you talked about oh. in one of your papers? Well, okay, so... Strings in the cosmic sense. Yeah. Okay, you can ask the question of whether there will be uh, some kind of... The superstring itself is some could exist as a microscopic string. We usually imagine it as a microscopic string, but if it's a closed string that can't break, you could stretch it across the horizon. But it's actually so fabulously heavy that that kind of string couldn't really exist in our world today. Also, it turns out that they are the boundary of axion domain walls, mm -hmm. which would have caused, presumably caused them to disappear. But we can ask whether string theory would give rise to somewhat lighter cosmic strings, like have been discussed by Kibble and Vlankin and others. And, well, since I've always been a fan of those cosmic strings, I hope that the answer is yes. But <laughs> you can easily describe many plausible scenarios by which they might arise, but you certainly couldn't say there's a prediction. Mm -hmm. it's odd, yes. yes. You don't think there's a QCD-like argument to be made about confining them? No, because they don't carry non-abelian quantum numbers. They don't. Well, to differently put, any non-abelian quantum numbers they could find, carry can be screened by ordinary yes. particles. Yes. The only unusual thing they carry is electric charge one-fifth. By adding to them standard quarks and things, yes. you can make a state which is neutral under every, all non-abelian quantum numbers and has electric charge one-fifth. So if electricity isn't confining, they won't be confined. Oh, I see. 
I see. So they are a definite prediction, you think? Uh, it will not, not be all Not with probability 100, but I think it's such a natural consequence of a theory that is only unified in higher dimensions mm -hmm. that there's an excellent chance it will survive. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that. Like, if you ask me, do I think it's an E6 or an SO10 model or a monophone? No, that, I think, is, as you said yesterday, is uh, really still to be fitted. Right. Yeah, fixed. Or if you ask, are there extra U1s or how yeah. many generations? How do you think you would eventually get this low mass scales into the picture? Some sort of exponentiation of something or the other? I hope it's an exponentiation of something. Well, of course, it's not clear why the fine structure constant is small. Microscopically, there's no dimensionless parameter. Yes. But somehow a small parameter has to come out of it anyway. And. To get a big number or a very small one by exponentiating it, you already have to have a moderately small number. And even that's slightly mysterious. Last summer I was reading the fascinating book by Andre Weil on the history of number theory. Oh, yes. From Hammurabi to Lajanda. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Ah, this one. It's quite interesting. Yes. But he discusses uh, Fermat's adventures with some simple Diophantine equation, yes. where Fermat found that the lowest integer-valued solution was something times 10 to the 15. Oh. Of some innocent looking equation. <laughs> oh, I see. So, <laughs> so <seems> well, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm really suggesting that the world is based on some strange solution of a Diophantine equation, but it's really interesting that he had a problem that was defined by numbers of order unity, <laughs> but the solution was some gigantic number. Yes. yes. Going back to the cosmic strings, the very long ones that might occur in astronomy, you were telling me the other day that they may have seen some of these strings coming out from the center of the galaxy. Do you take that seriously? Seen <laughs> them? <laughs> yes, that's... Uh... Well, I wish I were a radio astronomer and could make an, a more independent judgment. Um, the majority of astrophysicists uh, that I've asked about it express a skepticism, or at least caution, similar to yours. And uh, I'm not in a position to have an independent judgment. I hope it's true, because I think it would be a great thing for both astrophysics and particle physics if cosmic strings were discovered. In fact, for particle physics, it would be one of the fundamental measurements. You'd measure at least the mass of the string, if you saw it at all. I believe you'd find ways of measuring its mass. And that would be a fundamental measurement of a new scale of symmetry breaking, probably way beyond what's accessible to accelerators. So, what would a measurement imply? What would the measurement, what would one have to do to get a measurement? Well, it depends on how heavy it is. Vlankin pointed out that if it's heavy enough, you would actually see it as a gravitational lens. But the original idea was that these were the seeds of galaxies, that no, galaxies form that way. Are finished. Yes, but, but now these are strings you actually see as a string in the sky, you see. That's the idea. Okay, originally Vlankin and others investigated ways of observing strings by their gravitational interactions. Mm -hmm. But there's another possibility for observing strings, because under certain conditions, one of these cosmic strings is an electrical conductor, in fact, a superconductor. Mm -hmm. And as a superconductor moves through the conducting plasma of interstellar or intergalactic space, well, it's a superconducting moving in a magnetic field will push the magnetic field lines upstream. And to do that, it has to start carrying the current. Mm -hmm. So pretty soon, you've got a gigantic current wreaking havoc with the magnetic fields and creating all kinds of storms and who knows what. In fact, I think the plasma physics involved would look rather complicated. Complicated enough that I've certainly never attempted to understand it myself. But the New York Times, on the first page of the science section, published a very amusing picture a couple weeks ago 
of the galactic center. It's a radio picture of the galactic center with some threads coming out. Mm -hmm. The threads are 100 parsecs long and one parsec across. And George Fields, the astrophysicist, is quoted as making the speculation that these could be cosmic strings, by which I presume he meant superconducting cosmic strings, which... Uh, How are these maps made in the first place? I don't know the details, but generally speaking, it's a radio picture of the galactic center made with, I think, the VLA, a very long baseline mm -hmm. interferometer. It has much higher resolution than previously, which you need because the, uh, the, the thread which is being detected has a width of order one parsec at a distance of 10 to the 4 parsecs. <laughs> I think it's marvelous. I, I heard it first just yesterday. My immediate reaction was you could find a more conventional explanation, which I'm sure is what your astrophysicist friend said, but who knows? Who knows? Oh, the one parsec will arise because no matter how thin it is, as a superconducting wire it travels through the plasma, yeah. it produces tremendous disturbances which can easily extend out to a parsec. I see. Terrible magnetic yeah. storms and cosmic ray showers. Really, uh, I think there's a good chance you'd at least measure its mass. Regrettably, Lincoln showed, I guess, that it wouldn't really be a source, that a perfectly straight thing wouldn't really be a source of um, Newtonian gravity. But you mean from the from the bending of light coming past the oh, string? If it's heavy enough, the lens yeah, if it's heavy enough, then once you see it in the sky, you definitely can look for things like double images of foreground objects. Yeah. Uh -huh. Although actually, this is thick enough that you'd have to find, you'd have to do your observing uh, at some wavelength to which the thing is transparent. Do you mean Cygnus X3-like objects as, as we understood them before the, the suggestions muonic, uh, of the muonic uh, showers and so on? Because I think the no. data there is, is, is not accepted as correct. Oh, the so. muonic showers? Yes. Data. Why not? Well, no. Still I just now observed a four which could have detected it. That's good enough uh, well, statistics, I, isn't it? I'm being but conservative again. Since it, analysis shows it would require quite new physics, yeah. I mean, Objects, particles no. coming from Cygnus X3 of a new type to explain the positive well, data. Not, not really new type. I mean, well, uh, that's what I mean. No, I don't think so. I call that new physics. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so this... Half the observers don't see any effect, you see. Then it seems to me one, one should be conservative about it. But to predict how many objects like Cygnus X3 from an astronomer's point of view should be present, say, in our own galaxy is too difficult. Till you understand the... Cygnus X3 in our galaxy? I yes. No, no. Are you sure? It's in our galaxy. Is it? Because the magnetic field, the higher magnetic field rotating at such mm -hmm. velocity gives a velocity higher than light at a certain mm -hmm. distance, mm -hmm. which produces this effect according mm -hmm. to him. So he said, mm -hmm. it's one of the effects that he had foreseen really? for, for, yeah. for neutron stars, naturally. Well, how, how about how long they last for? Um, yeah, that's another question. I've heard it said that Cygnus X3 could be producing most of the cosmic rays in the galaxy at high energy. To the 5TV or whatever it is being produced. What I'm really asking is, could we have some, some brother of Cygnus X3 which would produce 10 to the 16 TV? Well, it would be nice, wouldn't it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, there's nothing um, to stop it. Incidentally, co superconducting cosmic strings with, depending on the particle physics, yeah. can produce particles of incredibly high energy. Because as it travels through a magnetic field, mm -hmm. in displacing the field lines, it has to pick up bigger and bigger currents, mm -hmm. which are carried by more and more energetic particles. Mm -hmm. And eventually, in too strong a field, it, it, well, with too high a current, any superconducting wire goes normal. 
and we'll expel all those particles in some dreadful cosmic ray burst. Well, the conventional explanation is that it's in supernova explosions, at least up to some energy, not perhaps the very highest energies that are detected. This would occur just within our galaxy. But the very highest energies may be made in, in external, more powerful galaxies where explosions perhaps occur at the center of the system and those cosmic rays come to us. Well, there's no definitive proof that this very favored view is, is correct. Energetically, it's reasonable. We know how much energy supernovae put out in our galaxy. And if, say, a few percent of that went into cosmic rays, then energetically that, that's all right. But that's not proof. A picture of cosmic rays? Yes, it, well, it could do, certainly at high energies or even maybe at lower energies. Uh, it, it, it's often very difficult to demonstrate that, uh, that a theory that on energetic grounds is adequate enough to do it is actually the dominant source. Because if it happened to be only producing a few percent of what we see, then of course most of it is made by some other mechanism. So we don't... But of course they do, you see, as they propagate in the galaxy, the galactic magnetic field stirs them all up so that you can't just tell from direction of arrival where they came from. That's one of the fundamental difficulties, of course. If it were true that cosmic rays, at least in some energy range, come mostly from Cygnus X3, it would be a dramatic illustration of the need for experimental science, because it would have been hard to guess, for theorists to guess that in some energy oh, range, yes. cosmic rays were mostly coming from some weird object. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it really is a fascinating study. How one can spend ages hitting one's head against something which is experimentally totally irrelevant. Take SU3. I don't know how much influence SU3, the old-fashioned flavor SU3 had on your thinking, but for us it was the end-all and be-all. And by God, it's such a lousy group to deal with. It's such a lousy group to make into fundamental sense that we, at least I, heaved a sigh of relief when it went away and became SU4 or SU2, Cross as you two, cross as you two, or whatever it is. Or what became explained as a consequence of quark mass, which we should masses, think about. Yes. <laughs> so really, I mean, the experiment is such a bomb sometimes to theoretical prejudice that it's a fascinating study if somebody should. It's certainly a sobering to see, also very frequently, how one can be very close to the truth of something, but by making a slight error, well, the signature because of some missing ingredient, which for cosmic rays could have been Cygnus X3, or yes. some, some little fact that you just should know in order to investigate this problem, <laughs> you could reach completely All the wrong conclusions. But he didn't know which the sources were. He just wait, said wait. this is a way of accelerating the particles in cosmic that, conditions. Yes, yeah. Is it still considered a major uh, mechanism? Oh, I, I think, think so, so yes. yes. Yes, although it doesn't work quite as effectively as he thought in the interstellar medium, but it may work in the shells of supernovae, for instance. Yes. But of course, astronomers suffer from the fact that they can't do experiments in a systematic way. They have to wait for messages from outside. Like, well, I wouldn't like to say Fermi, but... <laughs> well, he made a theory, I mean, about clashes with the magnetic field. Yes. Before SU, SU3, before that was SU3, which was a horrible group. I mean, if you had... Well, you didn't live through that period, you were lucky. But we used to beat our heads against the wall, trying to make a fundamental theory of that SU3. You can build a machine in the lab systematically to, to study 
yeah, problems you want. Do that. Yeah. As long as the energy is within, yes. within bound. But it's a little chaotic how long you have to wait before those machines that's find right, something. That's right, that's but right. After yeah. that, I'm one of those astronomers who prefers to control fantasy with, yes. with observation. Of various sorts which will change astronomy completely out of recognition soon. What's your time scales of changes, big changes? Something well, like space telescope, yes. which we hope will go up soon. That will extend our powers of observing stars and galaxies tremendously, but it's the same kind of astronomy as before, just with somewhat more powerful instruments. But we can't actually go out to Cygnus X3 and look at it and see what it's made of, for instance. That's what we'd like to do. Do you think there's any uh, even imaginable plan for an interstellar space probe? Not manned, of course, instrumented. Any prediction as to the, the limits of what one can do is disproved you know, rather rapidly in the future. I would have thought if it's not against the laws of physics to do it. <laughs> it can be done, and unless it's too expensive, it will be done. I don't see why not. People like Freeman Dyson have speculated very seriously along those lines. Yes, I think it's... Maybe not for a couple of centuries, I don't know, but I don't see why not. A conversation with Dyson that made me think about ah, yes. the question. Yes. to do experiments so you can go farther and farther with your fantasy and make <laughs> speculations. On paper, uh, if you assume it was a major priority, for some sufficiently wealthy organization or country, uh, you can use the fuel. And you can have a big, ponderous uh, microwave beam in orbit, which is accelerating a few tens of grams of instruments uh, with an umbrella behind it. Mm. And uh, on, power, on paper, highly optimistic assumptions show that uh, if it were, uh, if some technologically developed country considered a major national priority. Yes. It could be done uh, in a few decades. Mm -hmm. And can be done means that once you develop this thing, you could get to in interesting astronomical objects in travel times of 10 years or so. Oh, I see. 10 years. Well, the, another thing I should mention is that Dyson is convinced that within just a few light years of us, there are bound to be interesting objects that haven't been discovered yet. Uh-huh. Why does he think that? Well, because Many astronomical objects are uh, undetectable. For instance, theory says that neutron stars should be as, almost as uh, numerous as ordinary stars, but only a few hundred are observed. Most of them are too dim. Yes. So there should be a lot of dim, dim neutron stars and black holes in our neighborhood. Space stations find similar things in the, even though they are not very far off. Just because they have no constraints in the atmosphere, the dimness will be reduced. And well, I don't think space telescope would be able to see the objects that Ed has just spoken about. It will be able to see fainter objects because there is uh, not the scattering from the atmosphere, and it will have much better angular resolution and much wider wavelength coverage. So it will be tremendously important for astronomy. What but it wouldn't. Would the scale of luminosity go up to? Um, well, it would be able to see galaxies something like, uh, this is not a very accurate answer, something like 10 or 100 times fainter uh -huh. than we're now normally used to seeing. Yes. But to see objects of the kind we were just speaking of, yes. I don't nobody particularly expects Space Telescope to be able to do that. But it will still change astronomy, I think, uh -huh. with its new powers, rather like when Galileo built, essentially used the first telescope. Yes, that's a tremendous change. So that, that, that's, a tremendous that's why the Americans are willing to spend so much money on it, because it will still change astronomy very greatly, but that not to the extent we're now discussing. Well, actually, with the European support, the Europeans are involved in the Space Telescope by yeah. building an instrument for it, 
we buy our way onto space telescope and we get 15% of the observing time yes. uh, by spending, I suppose, 15% or whatever the fraction is of the cost. And we do it by building a particular well, what detector. What amount of money is involved? Do you have any idea? Gosh, I don't remember now. This oh, yeah. number keeps changing. I don't want to say a number that's wrong. But when we say who are the Americans? Well, NASA, American government through NASA. Is it a billion-dollar project or a half a billion? Or yes, no, it's not too far off. From not too far off, I should right. think, yes. Right. So for, 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 for tens or, or hundreds of millions, we yes. build this particular detector, we the yes. Europeans, yes. and buy our way onto the instrument. So we get 15% of time on an instrument we could never possibly uh, mm -hmm. build ourselves as Europeans. Yes. So that's the... With President Reagan putting an 8% on uh, taxes, and for the sake of SDI, maybe the next administration can change the same amount of money onto space science. Suppose he gets it through the Congress. The next administration may have an easier job just changing science, the objectives. Yeah. Yeah, this could be a resolution. Just changing the objectives. I wish I could believe that that was likely to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I don't know if the first part will happen, but the second part, unfortunately, if it gets through as Star Wars, to hope that it will be turned in, into space science uh, seems a little bit optimistic. Right. To me, it seems like a natural concern that once Star Wars uh, gets rolling, there will come to be a lobby for it of uh -huh. contractors and people working for Star Wars who depend on it for their livelihood. And there will come to be a Star Wars lobby that has nothing to do with any alleged virtues or, for that matter, any faults of Star Wars as um, a defense system. Um. Why did you say before that uh, cosmic strings are no longer alive for galaxy No, Abdus said it, not me. What did I say? I, I didn't What's say your that. opinion about it? I, well, it's not something I've worked on. I, uh, uh, I think it's still taken seriously by a small number of serious people like Tom Kibble, who's just at the moment writing new papers on the subject. Yes, yes, yes. But it was, you said, Abdus, that, that cosmic strings for making <coughs> galaxies are now dead. I let it pass, but actually I didn't quite no, no, know what... No, no, whatever, whatever, meant. Dead in the sense of doing anything with them experimentally. Dead in the sense that they've done their job, and that's the end of it. Well, well, galaxies have been made, uh, and now you will not know whether they are... Oh. They were at the bottom of the business or not, and what more could you do with them? They've done their job. No, well, the ones no, that created no more galaxies. No, no, no more no, galaxy no, no, creation. No, no. There are predictions, actually. For instance, if you just say that galaxies were made by nucleation around cosmic strings, yes. it turns out that those cosmic strings, in the process of disappearing, yes. would have created a detectable amount of gravitational radiation. Or would have. Yes. So while the theory can't be proved, it can be disproved by not finding the gravitational I radiation. I see. I see. Well, that's good then. Well, there's another example. According to Kibble's latest work, yes. you can calculate from the string theory of galaxy formation what you'd expect to get for the correlation function of the galaxy distribution. Uh -huh. That is, if you know there's a galaxy here, what greater probability than average yes. is that there's a, another galaxy nearby? Mm -hmm. This is a correlation function which is known observationally very well. Yes. The main architect of that work is a colleague of Ed's at Princeton, Jim Peebles. Oh, yes. So observationally, this correlation function is known well. And according to Kibble, you get very well that function you out of the string theory. I see. Without so, any yeah. adjustable parameters designed to so get it. But then, made the what I was saying now, you would also expect some gravitational radiation to be around. Yeah, I think so, Hans. The, the chances of detecting it 
observations of rail-like gravitational radiation are likely to improve significantly in the next 10 years. And there's a reasonable chance that this string picture can be disproved or supported yes. in a reasonable time. We provide the 21st century equivalent of a new detecting device for particle physics or for other phenomena like the ones we are talking about. Well, it's a timely moment you ask me this, Abdus, because next week I'm going to England for a conference on gravitational wave detectors. Yes. The, the British group based on Glasgow is attempting to raise money from the Science Research Council for an yeah. ambitious detector, yeah. and they're bringing the leading people from California and uh, yes. uh, Italy, I suppose, and Germany. Yes. And the hope is that in the next 10 years, gravitational wave detectors will become sufficiently sensitive, not perhaps to detect these waves we were now speaking of, but to detect supernova, stars collapsing to make supernovae yes. in the Virgo cluster of galaxies. Yes. There's about one event a month, I suppose. Uh -huh. And these can be picked up with detectors, not today, yes. but the sensitivity required is, is programmed to be achieved in the next 10 years. With, with which they will increase their uh, sensitivity. Well, well, over the do. present, uh, I don't know, the, I'll know the numbers better next week, but yeah. something like a hundred times better than they can do today, I suppose. I but the technology seems to be online to do that, using laser methods and, and so forth. It's fantastic technique. It's something like getting a ton of, of, uh, of material in the form of a, a bar and detecting a change in the length of that by something like uh, one ten-thousandth of the radius of an electron. <laughs> and they, uh, they aim to, to detect these small length changes. That, in effect, is what the, the measurement involves. Mm. And, and, and that's what's required to see the gravitational waves from a supernova event in Virgo. Now, these particular things that Ed was talking about might occur at different frequencies and would uh, need different techniques. They're lower frequencies. Yes. And the interesting possibility of detecting them comes from um, their influence on the timing re residuals of pulsar observations. Right, yes, yes. I mean, for, for the explanation of clusters of galaxies and superclusters, this is not, I mean, a good explanation now with fractal methods, with fractal, I mean... What is fractal methods? With, well, uh, with uh, cows and uh, all that, I mean, this fractal, Mandelbrot, I mean, uh -huh, uh -huh. methods. I mean, I, I heard this, I mean, from Ruffini. For Ruffini, I think, is important there. And there are people also in Copenhagen, talking about the possibility of explaining the distribution of, uh, of, of cluster of galaxies in the absence of superclusters. But is this a matter of just mapping the distribution mapping with some mathematical technique yeah, yeah, or the physical explanation of how these objects form? No, no this is more a mathematical... Uh, it's more a description of their distribution. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yes. Well, I'm sure more sophisticated methods will be used to, to specify the distribution you're yes. trying to explain, but I must admit, as a physicist, my main interest is what physical mechanisms actually occurred, and do you need exotic things like strings, or can you use more old-fashioned ideas? Although other modern ideas for making galaxies are just as exotic as strings, but don't happen to involve strings. Things like quantum fluctuations in the very, very early universe near the Big Bang involving the so-called inflation process is a very popular way now of, of making the initial uh, disturbances that, that eventually evolved into galaxies. Well, so the, the link between very large things like galaxies and the sort of things in microphysics we started out talking about yeah. with Ed, uh, this is one of the great developments uh, in recent years. This, this discussion is possible. Mm -hmm.
But coming back nearer home, I mean, uh, don't you find, uh, Dennis, you and I are old, old people, that things have changed so much in our lifetime? They sure have. Haven't I they? don't know which change you have in mind now. There have even been so many changes, but... Well, for me, certainly the biggest change is when I started life, things were chaos. And now there is some sort of semblance of order, and there's a chaos of a different kind altogether. I mean, there's a chaos which is ordered chaos, if you like, like finding what the string theories are saying and so on. There's a different, uh, there's, a, there's an objective insight. There was none whatsoever when I started. Now, what I wanted to ask you was, is the same thing happened in your subject? I don't know which change you have in mind now. There have even been so many changes, but... hydrogen. Philip Universe was known. Fred Hoyle existed. Oh, Fred Hoyle existed, all right. Yes, he was. Yes. Uh, he was the pioneer of all those things. Well, when I started research, none of the revolution in modern astrophysics had occurred. I'm not saying there was a connection between the two things. Cosmological theory. Was the problem. I started research around 1949 under. Paul Dirac, in fact, whom Paul we are... Paul Dirac, one of the students of Dirac? Yes, whom good we are heavens. remembering at these times good very heavens, much. What did you do with Well, you may well ask. I started research in a, in, a, in a different part of physics, and in the middle I changed to relativity in Cambridge. Yes, yes. And so they hurriedly gave me Dirac as a supervisor to make up for this rather strange way of life. In 49, I started research in 49 too. Well, I got my PhD in 53, and I changed in about 51, Dirac became my supervisor. But since I'd worked out my what cosmological you theory... You was the problem? What you no, 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 I had worked... You see, I'd worked on a problem and told the authorities that I'd changed from statistical mechanics, and they oh, got I a see. big cross. Ah. And they said, well, we can't keep you with your old supervisor. Yes. So, and there weren't many people in relativity in Cambridge at that time, so they gave me Dirac. But I'd already worked out my theory, you see. It was no fault of his. That he didn't neglect me or anything. He had no opportunity to look after me, but officially he was my supervisor. Uh, and I saw him a few times and got and to know him. you were working on the famous uh, Shama, this sort of... Uh, uh, some Kibble, old nonsense about Marx. Oh, no. no, 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 it wasn't, the, it wasn't the stuff on torsion. It was before that. Oh, it was before that. It was that. things to do with Marx principle. I see. Mm. So, anyway, that's... Uh, but, uh, so, but the modern How era... How often did you see Dirac altogether? Oh, four or five times, I suppose. You know my favourite Dirac story. I go up to him once and I say, Professor Dirac, I've just thought of a way of relating the formation of stars to cosmological things. See, not galaxies, stars. Shall I tell you about it? Yes. And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved that. And then what happened? So I went away and two days later I realised it was absolute rubbish. <laughs> but I'm not answering your question. The thing is, in, the new deal in astrophysics really began in 1952. Yes. with the idea that the radio noise from the galaxy was due to synchrotron radiation, that is, relativistic electrons moving in, in the interstellar Why magnetic field. Well, because that, once we understood that, yes. we could understand that one could observe radio sources radiating in the same way from objects much more distant than could be seen by optical telescopes. Mm -hmm. So when people like Martin Ryle started mapping out the radio sources, yes. many of them, you see, that later some were found to be quasars and so on, but at the time it was clear that one could see objects in the radio mm -hmm. 
that would be too far away to be visible optically, so you could survey the universe out to much greater distances than before. So, so, so you would call the revolution as the radio sources mapping? So beginning so. to understand radio sources was the, be the, the beginning, and then quasars emerged out of yes. that. And quasars are still not understood. No, but it's an example of the revolution, I mean. No, oh, we now understand them, I think. In what way? Well, that it's, uh, we work on it here very strongly, in fact, that it's uh, accretion disk around black holes. It's not proved, but it's it's uh, very likely to be correct. Well, that's, that's likely, but uh, anyway, that's not going to be a revolution, I'm thinking. Like, would it exist? Well, you say universe? that now, but black holes, not only black holes. I can remember when even a neutron star was considered uh, not a respectful thing. Well, generally, I think that we are practically at the end, no? isn't it? <laughs> and so it is very hot here, and I think that we, we have to thank our uh, all of you to have been so kind to to make this show. However, it was a show. <laughs> well, it was a show. I made every word of it. It was a show. It was a show at all. I'm sorry. We were doing serious. No, it was very amazing. Serious discussion. I know, I know, I know, I know. It was amusing. Yeah, it was very kind. I don't want to profit of your patience. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank you.